0: in learning science, there's this thing called the forgetting curve, right? And I believe it's like after a certain amount of time, maybe like a couple of days after you learn something, you forget close to 90% of what you've learned. There's a lot of tendencies to to feel stuck, you know, and, and discouraged and give up.
1: Hello and welcome to the Scrimba podcast. On this weekly show, I speak with successful devs about their advice on learning to code and getting your first junior dev job. I'm Alex and today I'm joined by Gil Hernandez, a Scrimba teacher with more than a decade of professional experience. Gil worked as a developer for a while, but for the last decade or so, he's been focused entirely on teaching developers. It's pretty exciting to see what we can learn from someone who's watched the progression of the web and the demands of web developers firsthand. Not only that, but Gil has guided literally hundreds if not thousands of students. I'm sure there are some things we can learn from his vantage point. Now it goes about saying that Gil and I work together here at Scrimba, where we're both really passionate about teaching education, and helping new developers learn to code and break into tech. I'm glad to say our frequencies just matched on this one and we had a lot of energy for these
0: subjects in particular. I hope you enjoy. Let's get into it. I kind of got into coding by accident. I never thought I would get into it. I was quite terrified of it back in the days, right? That stigma of you got to be really good at math and algorithms and programming stuff. <laughs> so I kind of avoided coding at first. But before that, I was a musician and I thought I was going to get into music. I played the trumpet, you know, a little bit of percussion. And I even made my way into getting a music scholarship. I don't know how I did that. I, I guess I practiced enough to do that. <laughs> so I was like, OK. And I was part of a bunch of uh, ensembles and performance groups. And it was a lot of fun. I got to meet a lot of people, perform at a lot of great, fun, interesting places, But yeah, after a while, I said, well, I'm not good enough to maybe like be a music performer for a living, right? I probably couldn't gig around and play at all these major events. Uh, At least that's what I thought. So I could be a music educator, I could be a music teacher. And I thought about that for a little bit and I said, nah, maybe that's not for me. Then I got into designing, like multimedia design. That's kind of like the path I took in school. By doing that, I was introduced to the world of web design. You know, back in the day, uh, web design wasn't as cool of a thing. Thing, but it was still interesting to me, right? You can by yourself create this project and it can be interactive, right? Back in the day, we used things like Flash and um, even dabbled with PHP, but I could upload it to the web and share it with people, uh, you know, the angel fire sites and all that good stuff back in the day. And then people can interact with it and it felt really good. There was like some kind of instant gratification and like super tight feedback loop. Like I could code something, upload it and, and there it was. <laughs> so that kind of got me hooked. When you say back in the day. So this was like back in 2005, uh, 2004-ish. It's right before that whole web 2.0 movement, right? Or social media. And it became more about content and all these companies like Twitter and Facebook started popping up. So then being a web designer and a web developer was like this super cool thing. But yeah,
1: I was already doing it. So it, that was exciting. It's kind of mad to imagine what things were like back then. I don't know, you didn't have Flexbox, you didn't have Google Fonts, you didn't have Scrimba or MDM presumably or Chrome DevTools. Like, it must have been such a different world. Exactly. Exactly.
0: There were so many unknowns, and it was pre—you know—the whole web standards movement that sort of came after that, and you know everything in terms of accessibility, and you know from then on the things kind of quickly sort of evolved and, and picked up. But back in the day. Uh, became interested in, yeah, just a simple front end, like HTML, a little bit of CSS through this tool called Dreamweaver, (laughs) right? So that kind of eased me into coding. Uh, It wasn't a scary. It was a WYSIWYG, right? There was an interface to create all this with, and then through this tool called Flash, which was for, you know, interactivity and animations and that sort of thing, Well. It was powered by something called ActionScript, which is a form of ECMAScript, which is really where JavaScript came from. So that's what kind of got me interested in that, in object-oriented programming uh, through Flash. And I said, hey, this looks really similar to JavaScript. It really kind of helped ease me into coding in a less scary way, I would say.
1: It's just fascinating to me how, you know, the web and interfaces have evolved. You know, I think about the floppy disk icon that gets used for saving sometimes and how to a brand new person to computers, that will mean nothing or they'll have no memory of, you know, Microsoft Clippy, for example. I was thinking about that uh, recently. And never mind Flash and ActionScript and all these kind of things. It's interesting what you mentioned about the sort of stigma, I think you said, about maths and algorithms and computer science and degrees and things. Do you think that's kind of faded away as the years have gone by?
0: Yeah, I think in many ways it has. And like back in the day, even some of my instructors and early colleagues, a lot of them were like computer science majors or had some kind of programming background or major in school. But yeah, I think the more the web, for example, has evolved and and the more the tools have provided us to work with, like whether it's the HTML, CSS standards back in the day to the evolution of JavaScript with ES6 and beyond, the more those tools, I think give us maybe the less we need to worry about some of the lower level things, right. That we might, think we have to be concerned with, with regards to computer science and algorithmy type stuff, which is still important. It's still, I think, unimportant to to have some basis in that. In my experience, in fact, a lot of the people who I've worked with in the last decade or so, they don't have computer science degrees or backgrounds in programming. They were close to me in terms of experience. They were like had a music background or an art or English or writing, but they brought a lot of these sort of transferable skills into this new venture, right? This new career in programming or development or designing And it's worked out for them. So yeah, I didn't worry too much about not having a computer science degree or dabbling maybe as much as uh, i thought i should have been in (laughs) with a lot of the computer science related things
1: by the way you said that during the time you were doing music you thought about maybe doing music teaching basically but decided that wasn't for you and now of course and for many years you've worked as a uh, teacher teaching people how to code and things like that was teaching something always like in the in the kind of back of your head like why might that be
0: Teaching has always been in the family. Like my mom was my art teacher for many years growing up. And I grew up around a bunch of folks who eventually became teachers or even some of my best friends now are music teachers, right? What I thought about eventually doing. Uh, So yeah, even when I got into, you know, web design and front end web development, uh, I would always tell folks, you know what I really want to do at some point? And they said, yeah, you probably want to teach because that's what you should be doing. And I was like, whoa, how did you know that? (laughs) And it's like, well, you know, I see the way you interact with folks at work and mentor some of the juniors and try to get people excited about what you're learning and what they maybe should be learning, that sort of thing. So yeah, it was a kind of a natural transition from being a full-time dev and to teaching a little over 10 years ago.
1: What makes a good teacher?
0: I think first of all, you have to be able to tell some story, right? You, you got to be able to kind of impart your excitement and your experience uh, into a lesson that, you know, someone can engage with and, Uh, It's clear enough where they can internalize the concepts and not feel overwhelmed. There's also maybe got to be a little bit of humor (laughs) to kind of keep them sort of captivated in in what you're teaching them because some of these things can be dense. But I think in general, when we're talking about like content creation and teaching to broader audience, it's a little bit trickier because you you want to appeal to most learning styles and, and it's really hard to do that. So you kind of almost have to stay neutral, but still keep it short, focused and uh, entertaining. And, and in some way, bring yourself into it because students really love hearing you know some of the teachers' insights and having them bring themselves and their background and their experiences into what they're teaching. I think, yeah, overall, it just makes for a better lesson and more engaging for the learner as well. I think what's great about Scrimba is that we have the community. So we're the teachers. I try to make myself... Uh, accessible to folks on Discord, so you know I, I'm I can do quick follow ups with students. Don't worry, we'll put your Discord username in the show notes. So yeah, also just being accessible for the students if the opportunity allows itself for that. That's that's also important. Just showing that that you're there because yeah, this can be a pretty intimidating and an overwhelming experience for many if you're just uh, learning by yourself uh, and learning to code and uh, there's a lot of tendencies to, to feel stuck you know, and, and discouraged and give up. So uh, I think, yeah, part of what I do and want to do is just kind of help prevent that and, and be there for folks in any way. Coming up, what does Gil think of Web 2 versus Web 3? Hmm, MySpace profile styling, that was so much fun. We'll get back
1: into it in just a second, but if you are enjoying this episode of the pod please do us at scrimba a favor and share it with your friends on social media like on twitter or in your community like on discord maybe you'll write to the group chat and say hey if you've seen this podcast it's uh kind of cool uh, or maybe you'll just dm people and let them know what you're up to the reason why we ask and interrupt the episode is because word of mouth is really the best way to support a podcast like this and it shows us that you know it's something you enjoy and we should do more of so big thank you in advance also if you haven't already it would be super appreciated if you headed to Apple Podcasts and or Spotify and left the Scrimba podcast a five-star review. It really helps us reach new people. As you know, this is a weekly podcast and next week I'm talking with Ollie Church, who is a recently hired junior developer. I wanted to be an actor ever since I was really young. I auditioned for drama school, managed to get in, graduated and became an actor and along with that comes a whole host of jobs that i've done in order to pay bills alongside being an actor i became an escape room host and stepped up from that to become a manager and i was bobbling along quite happily uh combining acting i did a bit of performance teaching and it all sort of fitted quite nicely and when the pandemic hit it was a huge shock to the system that's next week on the scrimmer podcast so make sure to subscribe as not to miss it back to the interview with Gil. I wonder if a lot of people maybe underestimate just how much skill and thought and almost science around how people learn goes into being a good teacher. And even if we can't answer like what a good teacher is, most people can think of like a bad teaching experience. And it's pretty much the opposite of everything you said. You know, like a stuffy teacher who's not passionate about the subject. They just overwhelm you with too much information. I really respect and appreciate how much thought you put into things. Like I think it's called cognitive load, right? Like just how much information you can take on at once, breaking it down and making it more accessible. And I also wonder what the challenges are appealing to different learning styles, because there is this idea, isn't there? That people have different preferred ways of learning and actually sometimes it's okay to amalgamate different learning resources because you know sometimes you will watch a youtube video for example and kind of get it but not completely grok the concept like could be a JavaScript feature like arrow functions, for example, but then you watch a scrim and all of a sudden it falls into place. It's not that the scrim was necessarily better. It's just like the combination of things. And anyway, this whole science about how we learn and how we remember things is, is really fascinating to me. I'm sure it's something you've given a lot of thought to as it sort of uh, comes across in your teaching, I think.
0: Yeah, exactly. There's so many challenges with that. And even as you said, in learning science, there's this thing called the forgetting curve, right? And I believe it's like after a certain amount of time, maybe like a couple of days after you learn something, you forget close to 90% of what you've learned. Is it
1: the Ebbinghaus forgetting curve?
0: Yeah, yeah, it's related to that. And that's true. Like even when I teach students or whether it's like in like the boot camp, like we're doing now or, uh, you know, just chatting with students. So I always encourage them to even seek outside sources that supplement what they're learning just so they can get like different angles of attack or uh, someone else's perspective on, on a topic. I think that always tends to help cement these skills. And like you said, scoping is really, really important because there's a difference with, you know, if we're talking a, a lesson that's like 30 minutes long, and like you said, arrow functions, right, or something that's 30 minutes, but it's broken up in five minute digestible videos, right? That tends to be less overwhelming and easier to sort of digest uh, the concept. So yeah, scoping is really, really important. And it's a really important part of being a, a good instructor as well. And yeah, just taking into consideration that there are different levels of experiences that you're teaching to, and the challenge is really trying to bring everyone sort of on board or on ramp them together. But it varies whether it's live teaching or or through video, but scoping is, is a super, super crucial aspect of that.
1: It's a fantastic point because if you don't know the subject yet you as a student are not able to break it down in a manageable way. Like if there's a 30 minute presentation, for example, and there are no sections, it could be one video, say, with timestamps, but if there are no timestamps or sections, you can't possibly know the best way to break that down. So like what makes a great teacher is not just presenting the information, but also defining the scope so you can kind of break it down and take on enough to feel like you're making progress, but not so much that it can overwhelm you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And for something like you two, that's important, right? Just come up with these logical, sort of breakpoints where like, all right, let's pause here for a moment, even reflect back on what we learn and uh, give the student a mental break and some momentum going into uh, whatever the next lesson might be. It's tricky, but yeah, there's different ways to go about it depending on the medium.
1: I always appreciate somebody taking the time to share something that they know. But equally, it kind of sort of serves as a demonstration that not everybody who possesses knowledge is talented at imparting that knowledge to others. And one thing I remember when I was learning to code, I was like piecing together YouTube videos and reading books and things. And so often I would like open a YouTube video and it would be in the middle of some code base. And I'd be like, "Um, okay, like where did all this boilerplate come from? Like I had no idea what any of it meant or how we got there. I was already overwhelmed from the beginning. And then they're like, yeah, don't worry. This is some, you know, code from a previous video. No idea where to find that video either. And they go on to type and they're like, yeah, we're gonna write this here and this there and do that. And there's no real explanation behind logic and it, it sent me down a dangerous path actually because that gave me the impression at the beginning that to be a good coder was to like memorize code and lines of code because they weren't explaining their thought process or teaching me how to think like a programmer and so you know nowadays with the work we do at Scrimba, um, I feel very passionate as I'm sure you do about sort of giving students the best chance of success and actually learning how to think like a programmer and solve problems logically.
0: Yeah, there's so much work that goes into making students not feel (laughs) despair uh, versus being challenged. And that's uh, actually something that uh, we talked about once with Bob Zerol, right? That fine line between feeling despair and challenged. And (laughs) how do we navigate that with, with our lessons? It was a fascinating discussion. But yeah, we don't want to drop students into something where they're like under this scary shadow of uncertainty (laughs) right away. Uh, sometimes, Hey, maybe that's the way folks learn best. Uh, but yeah, when we're talking about a beginner curriculum, like what, we have here at Scrumba in the front end path, for example. Yeah, we, we want to make that on ramp super gradual uh, and cover everything very carefully, very deliberately so that by the time they get to something more advanced or maybe they revisit the path after having been away for a few days, so like, oh, OK, yeah, yeah, I got this. This isn't scary because there's so many tendencies to giving up <laughs> if we just overwhelm them with, with so many things at once. So there's a fine line and, and a balance.
1: That line between being challenged and giving up is so fine. Sometimes it's quite hard to navigate. If you go about it the wrong way, you do kind of cross that line and get to the point where you feel overwhelmed and discouraged and then your progress slows right down. You take lots of breaks. You could argue that consistency is more important than intensity in that respect. And with that in mind, I wanted to ask you, Gil, what are some things that students can do to kind of maintain their mindset and stay consistent in the long term?
0: That's a good question. And and so many people try, Different techniques that, that work for them. Uh, I would say for me, I treat learning as I'm an active learner. I, I treat it as an event on my calendar. Let's say so, just like you have a class, for example, that you might have to go to that you signed up for, or you have a gym membership and you know you have to at 10 a.m. every day. You got to drive to the gym and work out. Or I'll have dedicated slots on my calendar for learning. It might be that it's 30, 40 minutes a day, maybe an hour a day, if there's more time for it I'll plot those in my calendar and then I would treat that time as just dedicated focus time for learning and uh, I found Pomodoro works pretty well but it's mostly just being very serious about that yeah this is an event that I need to commit to and going into it there's certain maybe items that I want to sort of check off my learning list that I tackle and, and focus on for those 30 40 minutes or however they might be And then what I like to do after is I have a notepad or I'll have a Google Doc and I'll say, all right, well, I think about everything I learned and then I just try to jot it uh, down in my own words and kind of explain and synthesize it all in my own writing in my own voice, and that's when like the connections start to form and like, all right, this is sinking in. And if not, you know, I, I say, all right, these are maybe some of the things I might need to revisit. I might do that tomorrow at the beginning of the next session, or if I have a little bit of time, I might go back and revisit that. And yeah, I found the, the more and more I do that, and obviously teaching or giving code reviews to kind of get to put those into practice, or even just building a small project based on just one thing I learned, right? And sharing it with folks and getting some validation like, hey, that's really cool. How did you do that? Not only the, does that help me learn and really internalize the the new concepts I learned, but it also gives me a little validation and a lot of momentum and even confidence going forward. And that's what I, I try to talk with many students about who want to overcome uh, imposter syndrome, and they're feeling super challenged. Uh, well, I always mention one of my favorite quotes by Ed Catmull, and it's, when faced with a challenge, get smarter. So invest in yourself, whether it's 30, 40 minutes every few days to to get smarter, right? And and, and really share with folks uh, what you're learning and, and the things you're building. And I think that's going to keep you going.
1: It kind of reminds me of another quote, which is like, if I only had an hour to chop down a tree, I would spend the first 45 minutes sharpening my axe.
0: Yep. I have my learning list of things that I know I don't know. And these are the things that, that I maybe want to take on this week. And then you're, you're going to be amazed by how many things you just check off your learning list or uh, further down when you learn something new that you thought was super scary a, a few weeks back, you're going to say, oh, this makes total sense and I can connect it to something I learned last week. And that's when you yeah, really start to feel like you're getting over the, the hump in and, and that wall <laughs> that a lot of students hit when learning like JavaScript, for example.
1: I guess what you're describing in in one way is like a learning log, um, which is wicked because by reflecting on what you've been learning, that gives you a chance to internalize it more, but also sort of maybe identify where things aren't sticking and when that happens, yes, you can get frustrated and give up. But more than likely, if you've created this system beneath your learning where you're logging what you're learning, um, it introduces a point where you can ask yourself, okay, um, you know, maybe this resource isn't working for me, or you know, why isn't this sticking? Like Maybe I need to do more practice, or maybe I need to give it more time. And it just happens in life, like when you don't have a sort of log of what you're working on, you kind of mix reality with how you feel. And if something is really difficult, you feel like, oh, I'm just not getting this, this sucks but then you reference your learning log and you're like, oh, I've only been trying to learn this thing for three days. And like, you know, actually uh, it takes people three years to graduate with a computer science degree. (laughs) And like, you just start to put things in perspective, I think. You know, plus, by the way, the feeling of checking something off a checklist is awesome. You mentioned this earlier as well, by the way, as a teacher, like you want to make things fun and engaging. And actually it's very rewarding to uh, show people what you've built and put it in their hands. And, you know, the pride that comes with that. It's the thing that gives you motivation to, you know, tackle the next problem and learn the next thing.
0: One of the things I'm just in love with about ScrimBot. are things like solo projects where uh, we give students the opportunity to, as we say, take the training wheels off. And this is kind of where the rubber meets the road. Like, okay, I, I'm starting with a blank slate here and <laughs> let's see what I got. For
1: those listening, who haven't come across solo projects before. Can you talk a little bit about what they are and like the motivation Uh, behind them? like Why is it something that Scrimba decided to introduce into our curriculum? A
0: solo project is well, a project that you have to build completely on your own, uh, most of them from scratch. And they are at specific points in the front-end developer career path. And so, for example, the first project is uh, in Module 2 of the path and it's like a hometown webpage project. You have to work with some boilerplate code provided by the instructor and then you create a project that's personal to you. It's about your you know, your hometown, right? And then each project after that, the more you learn, the more complex the path gets and the more concepts you're, you're being introduced to, the more complex the projects get all the way up to a project where you're working with APIs and tools like React. But the idea is to use everything you learn up to that point to build something entirely on your own. We don't provide many hints or answers. It's up to you to get those answers, whether it's from your notes, from the community or really mostly Googling like many developers do. Uh, But the idea is that you have a handful of portfolio pieces really because you built them all on your own. So each has their own sort of unique take. And uh, that's really the basis for a portfolio and and eventually getting hired as a front end developer. That's a piece of it. So the the solo projects is where you really get to test and push your skills and also show people some really cool things that you built.
1: I guess another way of thinking about it is like a lot of uh, courses, they they teach you how to build a clone of something, which is kind of cool. And there are always options if you want to like change it or expand it, but you're not really encouraged that way. And everybody ends up with the same project. But with solo projects, like the hometown website you're describing Gil, you get some idea about where to start, but you'll basically be challenged to uh, take it further by yourself. And hopefully everything you've learned in the module you're watching on Scrimba will have given you the knowledge to, to do that. Right? You shouldn't feel out of your depth. You should only feel challenged. And obviously the solo projects get more challenging, um, but also more impressive as you make more progress during the career path. And especially towards the end, if you customize them sufficiently, they could be the same like projects you put in a portfolio potentially, or at least, uh, you know, can talk about during an interview.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And the idea with with like the first one, like you said, is not drop students in the middle of this project where they have uh, maybe all this, Overwhelming sort of boilerplate code to get with and, and figure out and sort through. Uh, no, it's a very simple web page with uh, some information that they basically just have to edit. That's that's personal, uh, and uh, we start from there and, and just gradually, like as you said, make them a little bit more difficult, uh, all the way up to a sort of full fledged front end application.
1: It's kind of crazy to me, the things we do at Scrimba, because from the outside looking in, you could sort of argue that Scrimba is a little bit like a course library or something. But now you start thinking about solar projects and the community and all these other things we do to support your learning so that you can do it consistently, all at hopefully a very affordable price. I also recognise that in recent months, we launched something called the Scrimba Bootcamp,
0: which actually, Gil, you head up. Can you tell us a bit more about it and what students need to know? I'm glad you asked because I'm really excited about the Scrimba Bootcamp. We're a little bit over a month in and it really builds upon the front end developer career path. So it's the same battle tested curriculum that get folks hired, but uh, you're part of this bootcamp program that is self paced. You know, it takes anywhere from three to maybe six, seven months to get through it and you are part of a dedicated study group. So if you're taking uh, the front end path as a pro student, for example, you know, you're going through it mostly on your own and we do offer lots of opportunities to interact and engage with the community. But the bootcamp itself, is a sort of mini cohorts that, that you are a part of, uh, all learning along with you, not at the same time because it's, it's asynchronous, but uh, you're part of this dedicated study group where you get to really share your experiences, your challenges, your learning wins, you get to help support and unblock each other. And we come together every week as a group uh, there's multiple sessions offered on on Mondays for example to kick off your learning week and give it some structure and yeah folks talk about the week leading up to it and what went well what they learned and you know bring up any challenges and like I said wins for the group we also make commitments and talk about what we're going to learn for the week and and what we have ahead and, and what we're doing in terms of projects uh, so it's it's really great and also what really makes it stand out from like other boot camps perhaps and maybe even our pro subscription is that we have a dedicated team of vetted expert code reviewers on board uh, that are part of Scrimba, the Scrimba Bootcamp. And they are dedicated to reviewing solo projects that the bootcamp students submit. And I'm really excited about that. It's been working out really well and students have been getting lots and lots of great feedback. And I think it's really transformed the way they build projects and, and really progress through the path. So that's, that's really exciting that, that we were able to do that.
1: So with Scrimbo, it sounds like you can enroll in the career path essentially and, you know, benefit from the community and some of the advice we shared in this podcast. But say you want to get a higher level of accountability and more support, as well as getting co-reviews, which is interesting because we kind of identified that it's really fun to show people your projects and get feedback. But if you show your like friends or your partner or your mom and dad, your project, they'll be like, wow, cool. But they're not going to tell you, but like, oh, I don't know, maybe this identifier should be more descriptive or like, you know your comments are too too long. You should possibly write more self-expressive code and things. The point being with code review is you, you can sort of get that benefit as well and it might just help you be more successful.
0: Absolutely. And many students come from the pro subscription. Also, many of them are ones who've attempted to learn a code uh, several times and it just wasn't working for them and they got discouraged and, and they gave up and, and they joined the boot camp to dive back into it. So uh, we aim to help folks like that as well, just to either get back into coding or yeah, learn from scratch. We have uh, a bunch of students who've been learning from the beginning as well, and and, uh, they've been coming along and progressing nicely. And a lot of students take advantage of just code reviews as well, right? So they're further along in the path, they've built up uh, a handful of solo projects and they come into the bootcamp with with the intent of getting their projects reviewed, all the projects they've created so far and, and go from there.
1: You know what, Gil? We have a few minutes left, actually. How about we do some quick-fire
0: questions? Let's do it.
1: What is your favorite code editor?
0: VS Code.
1: Actually, Scrimba's editor is based on VS Code, so that's a double whammy. What music do you listen to when you're coding or working in general? Being a musician, I'm hoping for quite an interesting answer.
0: I can't listen to anything with lyrics, so I I tend to go uh, with like movie soundtracks, uh, very cinematic, (laughs) and and also old school jazz. I love jazz, so I'll I'll dive back into some like Duke Ellington or even Louis Armstrong, just down and dirty jazz. (laughs) That really kind of helps with keeping me focused.
1: As a teacher, I'm kind of curious, who do you learn from or go to advice from
0: when you're learning something new? I have a lot of former colleagues that I fortunately got to build relationship with and, and kind of form connections with through the years. So there's a lot of people that I worked with, whether, like I said, a treehouse or just through sites like Twitter and going to conferences. So yeah, those are many of the folks who I still lean on and and connect with regularly, actually just to kind of get advice from and follow up. What about
1: tabs or spaces in your JavaScript code?
0: (laughs) Uh, Just typically lean on what's the default. I tend to use tabs recently, to be honest. No hard feelings for those who don't.
1: You mentioned at the beginning, you were kind of coding at the cusp of Web 2. So you were doing Web 1. You've been working and teaching during Web 2. And now some people would would argue and say, we're at the cusp of of Web 3. And so my question to you is: Web one, Web two, or Web three?
0: Web two. That's near and dear to me. Like even from a design standpoint, right? All the transformations that were happening just in design in general, all the like bubbly graphics and the gradients and all the cool things that we might attempt to do and recreate with CSS. So that was a fascinating and fun time. Big learning moments for me happened through the Web two area. Just tr- like you said, trying to uh, emulate sites and create clones of like Facebook and MySpace profile styling. That was so much fun. And so yeah, I would go with that.
1: I remember that to like do a drop down navigation, which you would do entirely of CSS now in the hover pseudo selector. Uh, people used to use JavaScript for stuff like that.
0: Oh yeah, there were so many clever techniques and I've had a bunch of books on how to maybe learn how to do it like turning a list into a drop-down menu or yeah with javascript and uh, it's evolved so much where like you said you can just do it with a handful of say flexbox properties for instance which you prefer gail coffee or tea definitely coffee i am fascinated with espresso i have a machine downstairs that i, I visit regularly although not as much <laughs> anymore
1: and finally you're from puerto rico right what should people know about puerto rico like what's it like what's some of your favorite things
0: oh i miss it i haven't been in a while so 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 Puerto Rico is a small, vibrant, incredibly lively and culture rich island. The weather is always beautiful. It is hot though, uh, but maybe not as humid as it is in Florida. It's more tolerable. The people are incredibly festive and the food is amazing. So just about every corner has all these different types of food and scenery in in terms of the beaches and and what happened in that region. So yeah, there's never a dull moment, whether it's on the West side and Rincon, where it's very, the vibe is more like a surf Costa Rica type place, and then on the east side of San Juan, where it's more modern and, and it's where a lot of the tech happens and there's uh, more activity. But either way, it's just a culture-rich, beautiful island that I miss dearly and want to revisit soon.
1: What a vibe and such a happy note to end on. I would be remiss if I didn't ask, you know, based on your vast experience as a developer, but also a teacher working at Treehouse before Scrimber, and lately you've been doing these really interactive calls as part of the bootcamp, where every Monday bootcamp students get to hang out with you personally and get advice and things like that about their approach to learning and things like that. What would be your kind of closing advice to any new developers or aspiring web developers out there
0: as to how to learn to code and find success in the job markets. It happens very differently for most people, but yeah, going into it, it's gonna be challenging uh, and don't expect to have to learn all the things, right? Related to what you're learning. There's gonna be many things that you know, many things that you know you don't know and many things that you don't know that you don't know, right? So uh, the trick as you learn is to kind of move those skills from bucket to bucket, right? From like, these are things that I don't know that I don't know. So try to figure that out. Then move it over to like the things that I know that I don't know. And then finally <laughs> into things, you know, and knowledge that you own. And also be an active learner. I see a lot of folks who fall into that passive learning trap where they're just watching video after video or just reading a post. Yeah, just engage in it, you know, lean forward. And and, and like I said, take notes, Watch it multiple times, maybe at at speeds that work for you if we're talking about video content. And yeah, really try to, after each learning lesson, for example, just try to break that information down in in, in your own words and even share what you're learning with others during that time. And you're going to find that, yeah, a lot of the things are going to maybe might start sticking and clicking a little bit easier and better. Going back to not feeling overwhelmed with having to know everything or memorize everything. A lot of students maybe feel like they have to, but it's the idea of we're not encyclopedias. We Nobody can memorize everything and, <laughs> and have that kind of a capacity. But it's more about not being a, an encyclopedia and thinking of it as being librarians, right? Be resourceful and, and have, like I said, your good notes and your resources and the things you can fall back on and revisit uh, when you're struggling or, or e- even when you're further down the road and more experience, you're, you're still gonna struggle with remembering things. So just keep that in mind. And if you have an opportunity to kind of lean into a community like you do at Scrim, but just take full advantage of that. It's gonna pay off and, and it's so incredibly valuable. And yeah, just forming connections, but also just sharing folks' experiences and, and what they're learning. It's, it's all just kind of plays into someone's success really, whether they're trying to get hired or they've been at it for a while. Be a librarian an encyclopedia.
1: Gil Hernandez, thank you so much for joining me
0: on the Scrimba podcast. Indeed, I appreciate it. I was happy to be here, Alex.
1: That was Gil Hernandez, a Scrimba teacher and lead instructor of the Scrimba bootcamp. You can find a link to that and all the information in the show notes, by the way. Thank you for listening. If you've made it this far and to the very end, you might want to subscribe to the podcast for more helpful and uplifting episodes with recently hired juniors like Ollie next week and industry experts like Gil. The way this works in the pod, by the way, is we alternate expert like Gil, new developer like Ollie, and the cycle continues. You can also tweet me, your host, Alex Booker, and share what lessons you've learned from the episode so I can thank you personally for tuning in. You can find my Twitter handle in the show notes. See you next week.